Each time I ventured out, I went further and further afield, training myself always to memorize the way back to the apartment, never to overlook a landmark. It was all the more challenging because I didn't speak Greek and few of the locals spoke English. I'd see a ruin on a far-off hill and try to find my way to it, always mindful that a safe trip home depended solely on my memory. I didn't know it at the time, but it was the beginning of my mountain training. Meanwhile, I was still getting lessons in the bare-knuckled ways of my father. One Saturday, he made slingshots for a friend and me out of wood and bicycle inner tubes. Whatever you do with these, David, he said, don't break any glass. I was attending an American school at the time. Each day our bus climbed a steep, winding hill to a beautiful private school in the forest. My friend and I immediately jumped on a city bus and rode up into the hills past our school to an abandoned building in the forest. We tried to shoot out all the windows in the building with the slingshots, but the rubber bands were too stiff to draw, so we decided instead to knock out all the windows by the more direct method of hurling rocks. We were so engrossed in our siege that we didn't notice a burly Greek watching us. Suddenly he appeared at our sides and grabbed us by the ears in a death grip and hauled us off into the forest. My friend started bawling and pleading as four other men gathered with our captor in a circle around us. They talked over our heads in Greek, and I think this was my first real intimation of the meaning of fear. Finally, they dragged us down to our school and had an assistant there telephone our parents. I was terrified, not of the Greeks any longer, but of my father. I feared I'd just earned my first whipping with his pigskin belt. My father picked us up at the school gate. Back home I sat at the kitchen table explaining everything to him in a quavering voice. He sat silently until I was finished. Then he stood up, leaned his hands on the table, his face close to mine, and said, David... I want you to take me up there and show me that man. My father was trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and he was said to have carried that training into bars now and again. He'd been knocked unconscious once in a barroom brawl in Germany, but more often than not it was he who came out on top. He had a reputation for being a very tough cookie. We drove back up the mountain. The Greek who'd caught us smashing windows came out to meet us in his pickup truck. It was clear that he was thinking this American was going to teach his son a lesson. When he got out of his truck, my father turned to me and calmly said, Wait here. The two of them walked off into the forest. A short time later, my father returned alone. I quickly got the picture. No Greek was going to push Major Brashear's kid around. This wasn't a matter of paternal protection, but of primitive pride. And it frightened me. My father's harshness escalated. The violence in him boiled over one night when we heard him and my mother arguing furiously in the bathroom. Soon my mother was screaming for help. My brothers charged down the hall with baseball bats to attempt her rescue, but my father just flung them back down the hall. Finally, one of our neighbors summoned the local police. Dad threw them out, too. One night, my father sat us all down on the living room sofa. Pointing at my mother, who sat in an armchair next to us, he said evenly, I don't care what you say, Ruth. The kids are going to decide whether I go or stay. I couldn't speak. 
I wanted desperately for him to leave, but how do you order your own father out of the house? My brother sat in silence while I sobbed. My sister got up and sat on my mother's lap. My father just stood there watching us. Finally, he stormed out the front door, slamming it behind him. None of us moved. We sat staring at the closed door. An enormous sense of relief coursed through me, and I stopped crying. Would he simply disappear, I wondered? Could it really be this easy? Moments later, the door flung open, and there he stood, angry and terrible. Wait a minute, he shouted. This is my house. I don't have to leave my house. The scene fades to black after that, like the ending of a sad movie. I don't remember what we did. I don't remember what my father did. I simply blanked it all out. And to this day, my brothers and sisters and mother and I have never spoken of the chaos he'd wrought in our lives. I only know that before my eyes, the hero of my young life had evolved, full-blown and bellowing, into a monster. My father's shadow fell over me like a dark malediction which became a source of deep and abiding fear. Those grim memories have periodically surfaced like prehistoric bones randomly unearthed. I used to have these profoundly disturbing dreams in which I was groping my way out of that dreadful darkness toward some sliver of light glowing in the distance. It was during this bleak time that I discovered the book, Mountains, with the photo of the Sherpa Tenzing Norgay atop Mount Everest. I was hooked in an instant. Tenzing's pose on that barren slope of rock and snow, the most remote point on the face of the earth, bespoke honor and hope and transcendence. It spoke directly to me of a promise that up there, on that forbidding mountain, lay a path of clean and simple nobility. It wasn't long before my mother packed us children into our Pontiac and drove off. We slept in the car that night, then soon boarded a plane for home. Anticipating we would head to Arkansas, where his mother lived, my father flew there, but my mother routed us instead to Canada, where we found haven with friends from Greece who lived in the gorgeous farm country along the shores of the St. Clair River. My mother was worn out, but she persevered. She worked on a farm to feed us and put together enough money to get us back to the States. She never really made enough, but in 1969 we returned home anyway, back to Cheyenne. Old friends from our previous stay there opened their home to us, and for nearly a year we lived out of suitcases while my mother looked for a decent job. Money was a serious problem. My father had kept all of our furniture, all of our possessions, including my mountains, book. He never sent one check for alimony or child support. Moreover, because he'd been sent to Vietnam as a military advisor, he couldn't be served with legal papers. The pitiful truth is, we never heard a word from him. It seemed that by stepping out the door of our apartment in Greece, we had ceased to exist for him. My mother wanted a job, and though she hadn't worked for some time, she had the necessary tools. She could type 105 words per minute. Sure enough, after months of trying, she landed a good post with the Attorney General at the State Capitol. Slowly, 
we began to reconstruct a normal life for ourselves. That meant another new school for me. I quickly made friends with Danny Oakes, also the son of divorced parents, and a blessed kindred spirit. I joined Danny's Boy Scout troop, mainly for the chance to explore the wilderness and climb rocks. I really couldn't get enough of it. Even when there were no troop outings, Danny and I would badger his mother into driving us out to Camp Jack, where we'd spend whole weekends scouting the woods and mountains. One day I managed to get my hands on a coil of old hemp rope for climbing. Neither of us knew a damn thing about mountain climbing, of course. All we had to guide us were pictures in library books. One Sunday I opened the Cheyenne newspaper to a photo of a man rappelling over a cliff with the rope run between his legs and looped across his shoulder. We immediately applied ourselves to replicating the procedure on the pinnacles around Camp Jack and came home with nasty rope burns on our necks and hands for our troubles. We didn't know how to fasten the rope securely around our bodies or, for that matter, the first thing about safety precautions. It's lucky my mountain career didn't end in Camp Jack that day. Even so, descending was one thing, getting up another. Danny was more interested in fly fishing and duck hunting than climbing, so my first real ascent was done alone, unroped, on a 150-foot spire. Twenty-five feet from the top, I suddenly found my holds hanging out of reach. I tiptoed onto a rock, leaning against the wall of the cliff. I reached high and stopped. I saw that once my toe left that rock, I risked losing my way down. Even then, I understood that retracing a risky route in reverse could be perilous, if not impossible. I weighed the risks against the gain and made my choice. As I had done in the Greek mazes, I carefully memorized the way back and went for it. The moment my foot left that rock, I experienced a wild surge of feelings, the rush of fear, the intoxication of the unknown, and above all, the exhilarating pleasure of self-discovery. Near the end of junior high school, I pleaded with my mom to let me go to the National Outdoor Leadership School in Lander, Wyoming. The course was too expensive for us, so I wrote to the legendary founder, Paul Petzold, who granted me a partial scholarship. My mom put me on a bus in Cheyenne with my brand new Kelly frame pack from the L.L. Bean catalog. I was feeling a little cocky, proud of my climbing experience and my new pack, but I was a little scared, too. I had no way of knowing how I'd measure up. National Outdoor Leadership School was a remarkable experience. Traversing the Wind River mountain range, we learned how to backpack, how to cook, how to build a fire in the rain, how to use a compass and read a topographical map. It was my first experience with a real ice axe, and I learned how to climb snow and how to self-arrest, a vital technique for stopping yourself when sliding down an icy or snowy slope. And I finally learned how to belay and repel properly and spare myself the rope burns. We grew fitter by the day as we walked the arduous trails. At one point, a woman injured herself and had to be evacuated. I was deemed too small to help carry her stretcher. That hurt. But near the end of the session, I was the one chosen to lead our solo patrol. With no instructors to guide us, and no food except some flour and whatever fish we could catch, our team had to chart a 25-mile course to the roadhead. We made it. I hated to leave. Doubly so, I think, because my family in the interim 
had moved again, this time to Denver. Once again I found myself a stranger in a new school. Still my mom's new job steered me into the mountains. It seemed that an acquaintance in her new office was a climbing buff. When my mom told him about my interest, he and his buddies invited me along to climb to a small cliff near Golden. It was a cold, blustery day, and the air was rich with the smell of hops from the Coors Brewery. I was wearing knickers and old-style climbing boots called Kronhofer's. I must have looked like an alpine waif with a rope. But I dearly wanted to impress these adults with my prowess so that maybe they'd take me along again. We found some short face climbs, and for the first time I realized that I could do some things that grown men couldn't. That motivated me to start training in earnest. Every day after school, while other kids went to football practice or swam laps, I went buildering. Derived from the term bouldering, which is the art of analyzing difficult climbing moves unroped on relatively low rocks, buildering was the urban climber's training orthodoxy. The brick walls of our apartment building provided practice holds, and I climbed them daily, building finger strength and discipline in my footwork. On days I felt I'd mastered the brick wall, I branched out, discovering other training grounds hidden in plain sight beside city sidewalks. One of my favorite places was the stone wall of the observatory near Denver's Botanical Gardens. Natural undulations in the large sandstone blocks and the curve of the wall made me feel as if I was climbing a real cliff. I attended Thomas Jefferson High School, a radical departure from my school in Wyoming. Everything was bigger, louder, faster. I was so used to being the outsider, I didn't even bother trying to fit in. I was physically and psychologically unsuited for team sports. I couldn't possibly answer to a coach or any sort of male authority figure for that matter. I answered only to myself and sometimes to my mom. If I wanted A's in class, I got them, but I felt no need to excel on anyone else's terms. It was a jangled time. The age of the Who, Led Zeppelin, and Deep Purple. Pink Floyd was huge in high schools. We were all explorers on the dark side of the moon. There was marijuana for some, LSD for others. But the drugs were turning harder and meaner all the while. Many TJ students were doing speed, but I never tried it. It was too scary. Besides, I was otherwise hooked. I spent my spare time bouldering, buildering, and reading about climbing, figuring out what I'd need in order to test my skills on a real mountain. I'd replaced my virtually useless hemp rope with 150 feet of stiff braided gold line, which purportedly stretched away.